Matthew chapter 22, we read, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot. Take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In chapters 21 and 22, we've quickly gone through three parables that has focused on the rebellion of the nation and the rejection of the nation and then retribution of the nation. In the parable of the two sons in chapter 21, verses 28 through 32, we learned in part that the rewards of the sons were given in reference to, in relationship to their willingness to obey their father. In the parable of the vine dressers in chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, we learn that the vineyard would be given to other tenants. Now in this parable, Jesus describes a wedding feast where the least likely are invited to both participate and celebrate with the king. It is an invitation to participate in the kingdom of heaven. In Luke's gospel, there's a similar parable in chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. In Luke's parable, it was told by Jesus earlier in his ministry. In Matthew's parable, the events surround this 
great marriage feast. In Luke's gospel, it's called the parable of the great supper. There are subtle differences between the two. In Matthew's gospel, the great wedding feast has something to do with the kingdom of heaven. And when you see that expression, the kingdom of heaven, you know it has something to do where God is large and in charge and in control. Why is this important? In one sense, the parable once again illustrates Israel's rejection of Christ's claims and message and then illustrates God's great mercy in extending another great invitation to those who are the least likely to participate. Again, what is the message of the Lord? Jesus wants his hearers to know that God extends a wonderful invitation to participate in his kingdom. And if you accept the invitation, you'll experience joy unspeakable and full of glory and rejection of the invitation leads to darkness, loss, judgment, punishment. In short, the king is God and the son is Christ. And once again, Jesus claims to be God's son, distinct from the messengers, distinct from the servants. The great marriage feast is that glorious day of redemption. It's the day when those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and the sacrifice of the Savior will see their Lord face to face. It's the time that Paul intimates in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 when he writes about a time when a trumpet will sound. And the dead in Christ will rise. And we who are alive and remain will hear the voice of the archangel. There is a final generation. There is a terminal generation who are alive and will remain. And they will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet in the Lord in the air. And it says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so here the invitation is at first declined in verses 1 and 2 and 3. Look what it says. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. For the first parable and the second parable and this parable, remember I've reminded you repeatedly. A parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. Remember, a parable is something that was intended to reveal to those who want to know and to conceal from those who refuse to know. And so he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son we see in this parable an allegory for the Messiah's wedding feast. 
which was spoken in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8, and then again in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. This feast, this celebration would have been known to the people who he is speaking to. And he says, and he sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. The first people called to this glorious celebration and wedding were the people of Israel. You should note very carefully and he sent out servants to call those who were invited. You're going to see a progression take place in the parable of the past and the present and the future. That expression to call those who were invited is a reference to those who have already received the invitation. The servants in the past the prophets in the past who called on Israel to change their heart and change their mind and change the course and the direction. The servants included the prophets in the past and John the Baptist in their lifetime. It also included the servants who were the apostles who preached and the 70 that Jesus appointed to go into every city to prepare the people for the coming of Christ in Luke chapter 10 verse 1. The words are few but chilling and they were not willing to come. Now you've got to understand something that in the ancient world a royal invitation was rarely refused. And then only under the most extreme of circumstances. Why in the world would anyone refuse a royal wedding? Some of you are old enough to remember the wedding of Princess Di to Prince Charles. Can you imagine if Queen Elizabeth sent you an invitation and said... I would like you to attend the wedding of my son. And you said, I don't have any way to get to London. I'll pay your way. I have nothing to wear. I'll purchase your garment. I have no place to stay. All reservations, all people who are invited to this royal wedding... Everyone and everything will be provided for you. Why in the world would you reject this invitation? Some people might think that they're too busy. They might think that a commitment to something else would take precedent. It could be hatred of the king. It could be a desire to insult the king. It might be a belief that perhaps the king can't make good on his promise. It might include something as wicked as a hatred for the son. Even a hatred for the bride. In Psalm 81 verses 11 and 12 we read, But my people would not heed me. They would not listen to my voice. 
Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. The Lord, through the psalmist, reminds the people listening that the people, my people, wouldn't listen to my voice, says the Lord. I spoke to you rising early, it says in Jeremiah 7, 13. And now, because you've done all these works, says the Lord, I spoke to you rising early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. It was the Lord's way of saying, I woke, I got you up early and said, I love you, won't you come? I walked with you throughout the day and I said, won't you come? I was with you towards the evening and I said, won't you come? They were called by God from the very first. Again, as you see this unfolding drama called the people of Israel, we've walked in the past with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We went into Egypt and we found Joseph who would deliver the nation. We saw the nation grow. We saw God send a deliverer, Moses. We walked through the wilderness. We entered into the land of promise in the book of Joshua. There was repeated invitations in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Daniel. They were called by God. Many were called. But look what it says in verse 4. Again, he sent out other servants saying, note this, tell those who are invited, see I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to my, to the wedding, come to the wedding. Now you have to understand something. In this culture, Two invitations were expected. In our culture, you usually get one invitation. Usually a person will say, hey, uh, my daughter's getting married, just like my brother sent me a note a couple of weeks ago. My niece got married yesterday. And the wedding invitation is on my refrigerator. And it gives the date and it says to RSVP. In this culture and in this society, there was an invitation that would have been extended. And then there was another invitation. The first one asked the guest to attend. The second invitation would say, everything is ready. All is prepared. All of the arrangements have been made. It's time to participate. The king has made an enormous and an abundant provision. When it says, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle. In that culture and society, the vast majority of people would never get to, to dine like this. You never had steak. Can you imagine what, what they're basically saying is, we have all of the beef fajitas you can eat. 
You'll have beef burritos. You'll have beef tacos. You'll have beef enchiladas. But it goes way beyond that. In this culture and society, it would be like Kobe beef. It would be like beef that's $100 for every three ounces. That if you put that one taste in your mouth, it just melts in your mouth. This would have been like, now I don't want to stretch the analogy too far, because as you know, Jews keep kosher. They don't eat lobster. They don't eat shrimp. But in our culture and society, it would be like, imagine all you can eat sushi, lobster thermidor. I've prepared everything. We have unlimited resources and you'll get to participate in all of it now again this king responds with mercy he once again responds with grace he once again responds with patience and in an incredible thing in something that would never ever really happen in the ancient world in the face of disrespect and disgrace the invitation is extended again and again you have to understand something you're missing the point if you fail to see what this parable is saying the implication is the invitation is extended and accepted and now the people refuse to come Jesus is going to die Jesus is going to come back to life after the resurrection, the same audience will hear that Jesus has defied death. He's come back to life. He truly is Israel's Messiah and Savior. All the sacrifices have been made. Every preparation has been made. The invitation stands. If ever there was a time to put aside doubt, unbelief, differences, it's the day of the king's son's wedding. The day has come. This is the day for joy. This is the day for celebration. This is the day that's been marked since eternity past for the son to embrace his bride. And the feast... It will be the greatest feast that has ever been given for the greatest wedding that has ever taken place. It's a picture of God's heart and God's ability and God's willingness to receive us. It's a picture of how God longs for our presence and that his preparation has been made for you to participate in this great marriage feast. Look what it says in verse 5. But they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm. Another to his business. And the rest seized his servants. Treated them spitefully. And killed them. This is almost unimaginable. Again, a second invitation. The invitation is extended to a busy farmer. It's extended to a busy merchant. It's extended to the religious. It's extended to the worldly. Jesus uses very interesting words. 
when he uses the term one to his own farm, you might look at it and think, so what? In the original language, it says ton, idion, agron. It's almost surprising when you read it in the original language. It means his own farm, his very own property. The implication is that this is a person who's decided that everything that he owns is apart from God. Everything that exists is for his own selfish enjoyment. And you have to understand that in that culture, in that society, the king owned everything. Everything. Yes, you might have a stewardship over your farm. You had ownership and property. There was ownership and property. But in an absolute monarchy, was the king able to seize whatever property he wanted whenever he wanted? In certain cultures and societies, that was the case. There was another busy merchant, a businessman. The implication is that they live in the city. They're involved in commerce. They're involved in trade. These are the people who are working, laboring, making a living, generating a profit. There's no time in their way of thinking. There's no need to acknowledge the king or his son. The king is a distraction. The king is a disturbance. The king is a hindrance. The king and his son are a threat. To their personal interests, their business interests, their financial interests. And if the king and the, his son are a threat to their wealth and their security and their business, it's going to generate hostility. John MacArthur said, the indifferent guests in the parable represent people who are preoccupied with daily living and personal pursuits. And lots of people find lots of reasons to ignore God, to ignore Jesus, to ignore the gospel, to ignore God's claims on their heart. It makes no sense to try and overthrow the king and his heir and take his kingdom. But that's exactly what they do. Look what it says. But they made light of it and went their ways. They mocked. They scorned. It says, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. The people who rejected the invitation gave themselves not only permission not to show up to the wedding, but to persecute God's servants. Made light translates, again, an interesting word in the original language. It is a word that means to care little or at all. It also could be translated to be careless. The word is... For the Greek scholar, what's called the aorist participle. The, the translation then would have to read, they were making light of it. But in other words, it, it, it isn't just simply they offhandedly made light of it. The, the idea is that this is something thoughtful, deliberate. 
It is definite. They've made the definite decision. They've made the definite decision not to attend the great marriage feast. This is negligence. This is carelessness. This is the person who says, why in the world would I want to believe this? Why in the world would I even believe that there is a God who might be king? Why in the world would I concede that there's something or someone supernatural? Why in the world would I want to lean on religious superstition or psychological crutches this is every single person who hears the story of Jesus his love for the world his sacrifice for sin and they say I don't care I don't care I don't need God I don't need a savior I think that this is all nonsense this is all garbage some people will devote their entire lives gathering evidence from science and philosophy and morality and history to buttress their hard hearts and their stubborn unbelief even though there's ample evidence from science and philosophy and morality and history to support the claims of Christ. So why do people reject the invitation? Why do people reject God's invitation to believe and receive and accept his son? The reason isn't because they have to. The reason is because they don't want to. In John chapter 5 verse 40, Jesus earlier told the religious leaders, you will not come to me so that you can have life. The king's messengers are often met with scorn and ridicule and abuse and persecution. And sometimes the messenger is even killed. Some of you might at this point have already found yourself in the parable. You might say, I'm not the person who wants to reject Jesus. You might even, for a brief moment, consider yourself to be the messenger. Telling people that there's a God who loves you. That there's a Christ who saves you. That his sacrifice on the cross can bring you to a place where you're accepted by God and forgiven by God. Look, the rejection is is described in verse 7. It says, but when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. That expression, the king was furious, one translation reads, he was wroth or angry or enraged. In Genesis 6.3 it says, 
And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Some people have wrongly thought that that means that human beings' lifespan would only be 120 years. But in the context, it seems to mean that there is 120 years until the ultimate judgment of a flood is going to come and overwhelm the planet. Some people hearing me right at this very moment in their heart will think, well, I don't believe in a God who gets angry. I don't believe in a God who judges. I don't believe in a God who would judge me or punish me for my sins. And you're free to believe whatever you want. that doesn't make it true. The king reminds his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. The ones who rejected the invitation, note what it says, are not worthy to attend either the wedding or the feast. And they won't. They won't attend either. So I want you to just for a moment, just think for a moment, why aren't the invited guests worthy? You should pay careful attention to, to the two sins that invited the judgment from the king. The first was the ridicule and the abuse of God's servants. Note, God destroyed those murderers, verse 7. The people who persecuted the messengers. And number two, those who rejected the invitation. That's the thing that made them unworthy. They rejected the invitation. It was the rejection of the invitation that invites the judgment. Because later we discover that they call both good and bad, Jew and Gentile. It's the implication of rejecting God's gracious invitation to know Christ, to come to Christ, to believe in Christ. And so, look, the invitation list is revised in verse 9. It says, therefore, in light of everything that you've seen thus far, go into the highways. The highways include those places that were well-traveled. And as many as you invite, find, invite to the wedding. Look what it says again. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, people on highways usually don't get special invitations to special events unless you're on the road that leads from Utah to Nevada and you're headed for Las Vegas and you see billboards that read come to this event come to that event come to this event come to that event but can you imagine if you read a billboard on your way to Las Vegas and it said come to Las Vegas and stay at the Trump Tower for free all meals free all entertainment free. 
let's just say for purposes of this illustration that uh, Donald Trump's daughter, one of them was, or it, it, I know he has a son that's unmarried, so we'll fast forward into the future and we'll say that Barron gets married in about 10 years and all of a sudden he's going to throw a great big party for his son and he says, come to the Trump Tower, stay for free, eat for free, be entertained for free. What do you think the chances of that happening are? You know it's zero. I want you to see the outrageousness of what's being told. Especially since anyone could come, Jew or Gentile. The invitation goes out. People on the highways don't normally get this kind of treatment. The traveler on the highway wouldn't expect the invitation. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that this becomes a type and a picture of all the roads that lead to the Gentiles. And note what it says, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. The invitation is extended to everyone. Old, young, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, poor, rich. Note carefully. Moral, immoral. Religious, irreligious. The wedding hall is filled with guests. And, and this might mean that some bad do accept the invitation. But they never really dress for the occasion in verses 11 through 14. We learned earlier in Matthew 13, 1, that the visible church contains both good and bad. There are people who will pray a sinner's prayer. They'll invite Jesus into their life and they'll say, I want Jesus in my heart and I want Jesus in my life. But they don't love him and they don't serve him. Their life has never really changed. Their mind has never really been changed. The real way in which they live has never Change. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 9, 13, but go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice because I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And in Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. In verse 9, notice the word find, invite. Verse 10, and all who were found. We find and then invite them to be found. God's servants are to invite the good and the bad, the moral and what you might think of as immoral, the religious and the irreligious, both moral and thoughtful like Cornelius, the Roman centurion who gave his life and his, and his good and his, his service to the people of God. But also, there's a list provided for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Because apparently Paul invited the deceived, and the fornicators, and the idolaters, and the adulterers, and the homosexuals, and the sodomites, and the thieves, and the covetous. covetous you read greedy. Covetous is too hard to say. You get all tongue-tied. Drunkards. Partiers extortioners. It says in verse 11, that's who you used to be. 
but you've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been sanctified. In Matthew 9, 13, Jesus said, come and I'll give you rest. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, 17, it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that has ears say, come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will and take of the water of life freely. In Isaiah 55, 1, it says, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. The idea is, I can't, I don't have enough money to get to heaven. You don't need money. Come buy wine and, and milk without money and without price. It's a picture of salvation by grace, unearned, unmerited, undeserved. It's the king's way of saying, come to the wedding. I don't have anything to wear. I'll provide for you. I'll give you the, the garment that's appropriate. And so in verse 11, it says, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who didn't have a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The final scene teaches us that salvation is personal and individual. In the parable, the king enters to see the guests. That expression, by the way, to see, translates a very specific Greek word. Thea, sathei. It means to view carefully, with scrutiny, with an attention to detail. Probably a better word is inspect. Inspect is something that you do that's thorough and complete. The emphasis is on the one performing the inspection. The king wants to make sure everything, everything, all of the people, everything, everything is in order for the great occasion. Everything is in order for the wedding feast. There's no problems. There's no issues. And so the king asks a simple question. Only one. Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? The joy and the celebration is interrupted. A man tries to attend the event improperly clothed. And you might think again, what, what's the big deal? What's the, I, I thought it didn't matter how you dressed if you came to church. It doesn't. It isn't talking about how you dress when you come to church. It's talking about how you're dressed when you get to heaven. What is he trying to say? All guests must wear clean clothes. Proper clothes. Remember, even in the ancient world, if you were on the highways and the byways and you are covered with soot and you're covered with mud and you're covered with dirt, you may not know this, but in the ancient world, it wasn't unusual for ancient kings to provide linen robes for guests in special celebrations. And so the king is provided the appropriate dress for the appropriate people. Why? Soiled garments is going to take away from the focus of the bride and the groom. You may not be able to see it in the story, but in the story, the king wants all the attention on his son. And so if a person comes in dressed inappropriately, they bring undue attention to themselves. 
You might think in the story, well, what if the guest can't afford the necessary garment? Again, this man's disrespect and ingratitude comes because he refuses to wear the garment that's been given by the king. How is it possible, by the way, that the guests ignored this man's condition and yet the king was able to see it? The wedding garment is righteousness. The proper attire at the wedding is what the Bible calls the robes of righteousness. In Isaiah 61, 10, it said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, the Lord says, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. In Ephesians 4, 24, it says, And that you put on the new man which God has created in righteousness, true holiness, the king gives you the robes of righteousness that's found in Christ. But you have to put it on. God invites you to the wedding and then provides the necessary gear. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 13, one of the elders says, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where did they come from? John says, Sir, you know. And so he called to me. These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How can you have a white robe, crystal, clear, beautiful, shining, dipped in blood? It's because it's Jesus. You're accepted in Jesus. You are made right with God and Jesus. The king makes a special provision for the clothes for the guests who accept the invitation. The king gives him an undeserved respect. Friend, how did you get in here? I know what you want the text to say. I snuck in. I came in the back door when nobody was looking. I didn't know I had to accept Jesus. I'm one of those guys that you hear about when people talk about the aborigine or the person who's never heard about Jesus. That's me. I snuck in when nobody else was looking. That's not what the text says. The man is speechless. Again, it's a very specific Greek word. It's muzzled, muted. We could even translate this tongue-tied. He has no excuse. He has no response. Do you know why? Because he's guilty of disrespect and dishonor. He's wearing a garment that's unsuitable in the king's presence and unsuitable for the occasion. His garment is unclean. And so it is for everyone who thinks that they can appear before God based on their own righteousness, 
based on their own goodness, based on their own participation in church or reading the Bible. And in verse 13 it says, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The servants who bind the man hand and foot are not the same servants who had delivered the invitation. In verses 3 and 4, a different word is used. These are angelic guardians of heaven, tasked with heaven's security. Note three things. Number one, the man's tied hand and foot. These are the body parts that we normally use to sin against God. The hands are bound because there's no resistance. The feet are bound because there is no escape. Whatever the king says is done. On that great day, no one, no man, no woman will be able to escape. And number two, the man is taken away, number one, from the king's presence. He is taken away from the king's presence, the provision of the king, the celebration of the king, the joy of the occasion. He's taken away from the light. Look what it says, that's number three. He's cast into outer darkness, far away. He's removed from the king, but he's also removed from the other guests. He doesn't get to participate in the occasion. He doesn't get to see the occasion. Whatever light is generated by that occasion, whatever brilliance is given because of the great wedding feast, he doesn't even get a glimpse. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, the Lord said, And I say to you that many will come from east and west. They'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's described as a place of sorrow and regret. And in verse 14, it says, for many are called, but few are chosen. In a single sentence, we see the tension between God's sovereignty and man's will. Jesus made the exact comment in Matthew 20, verse 16. In context, there are several calls. The Jews are called, but they don't respond. The Gentiles are called, but few are responding there's God's call to those who enter in. What are you wearing? Are you wearing the robes of righteousness that are found in Christ? You will be wearing either the robes of false profession and personal hypocrisy or the robes of righteousness. There are those within the church who have not put on Christ. And the evidence, of course, is because they love this world. They love the things of this world. They refuse to repent. They refuse to turn from their sin. They refuse to love the Lord and love each other. They refuse to live their lives as if the gospel are true. There's an absence of love in thought and speech and conduct. In Luke 13, 24, Jesus says the tragic words, many, I say to you, will seek to enter in, but they won't be able. 
What do you mean? I want to go to heaven. You can. Apart from Christ, you can't. I want to go to heaven. You can. But I want to hold on to my sin. You can't. I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to change. You can go to heaven. But everyone who comes to Christ will change. Because narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way which leads to life. Few find it. Narrow. Difficult. Few. The wedding feast is a great day. It's also an inspection day. Before God presents us to Christ, he will inspect each one of you to see whether or not you're properly clothed. Here's the invitation. I've been given permission to give it to you. Come to the wedding. I'm going to also extend the courtesy to each and every one of you. You have the right to invite everyone to the wedding. But you have to faithfully deliver the message to your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your family. What if I faithfully deliver the message and they won't hear me? Welcome to the club. <laughs> Mae West famously said, when I have to choose between two evils, I always pick the one I never picked before. I watched a Mae West movie. It was so good. But that's the way the world is. When faced between a, a decision between two evils. But we're not faced with the choice of two evils. We're faced with the choice between one good and one evil. A narrow path and a broad way. An easy way and a difficult way. Have you made the choice? Have you received Christ as your savior? Do you, have you put on the robe of righteousness? I remembered a poem. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path. The hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Oh, where is that mysterious bourne by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far can one go in sin? How long will mercy spare? Where does grace end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the sky is sent. Ye who from God depart... While it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. There's still time. There's still a choice. There's still a decision. You can make it. You can accept the invitation. I'm going to extend it to you right now. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you've given me permission to extend this invitation. Lord, I'm hoping that people will find themselves in the parable, not as the person who rejected the invitation, but as the person who accepted the invitation. Maybe even one day to become the person in the parable who extends the invitation to others, who will say what I'm saying right at this very moment, that God loves you and that Jesus loves you, that Jesus came to the earth to die on a cross for sin, a sin that disqualifies you from heaven and makes it impossible for you to participate in the celebration. But Lord, you've said that you would Give each and every one grace and mercy and your love and acceptance for those who will call out to your son, who will believe with their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord, that his sacrifice for sin will cleanse my heart. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's never made that decision, who's tried to postpone it, who's tried to put it off, who's tried to ignore the repeated invitation to come to you, to turn away from sin, to love Jesus and serve Jesus and walk with Jesus. And if that's you and you've never accepted Christ, then you know you need to. The invitation is extended to you. Won't you accept it? The acceptance isn't just by raising your hand or saying that this is something that I want to do. It comes from believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that it's true. So I'm going to invite you to do exactly that. To come and say, this is what I want. I'm going to invite you to come, accept the invitation, and to make sure you're wearing the robes of righteousness so that when you get to heaven, you won't be surprised, or when you get to see God. You know, this is my job. It's to prepare you for that moment when the Lord says to you, what are you doing here? I need to be able to tell you what to say. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I'm wearing the robes of righteousness. There was an invitation that was extended to me that if I would believe and love and serve Jesus, that you would accept me. I have it on good authority, but that's exactly what's going to happen. Won't you come? It's easy to do. Just get up out of your seat and come. We're going to end with a song. This is your opportunity.